We all seem to have a love-hate relationship with YouTube. We produce a video and it does well, we love it. We produce a video and it does poorly, then all of a sudden we blame YouTube and its algorithm. But is the algorithm really at fault here? Or perhaps it's our content, or perhaps it's a combination. Today's episode will fundamentally change the way that you upload content to your YouTube channel. Welcome to Tube Talk, the show dedicated to helping you become a better video creator so you can get more views, subscribers, and build your audience. Brought to you by vidIQ. Download for free at vidIQ.com. And welcome to another episode of Tube Talk. My name is Liron Segev. I am a tech blogger, a YouTuber, and the director of customer success here at vidIQ, where we help you get more views, more subscribers, in less time. Look, we're data nerds. I mean, we like to deep dive into those big data sets, analyze those trends and provide you the tools so you can make good decisions for you and your channel. Which is why today we brought in a fellow data nerd to help us decode some of those YouTube mysteries. Joining us today is Matt Gillen, who is a YouTube strategist, consultant to Netflix, Nickelodeon, MTV, Comedy Central. You know, you might've heard of some of these names. Matt is actually a code cracker. No, no, not in a hacker kind of way, but I suppose maybe, yes, unpacking the YouTube algorithm it seems to be his speciality. Matt, welcome to Tube Talk. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, Matt, I've got to ask you something right off the bat before we even get going. Your company is called Little Monsters. Little Monster Media Co. So when I left Frederator about three years ago, I knew I wanted to start my own company and... We knew it was going to be mainly a consulting company and doing production for various companies and that kind of thing. Um, I thought of every combination of like YouTube and video and streaming and audience and nothing just really felt right. They felt like kind of generic or things that didn't really try to capture what we did. And so I tried to name it something unrelated to uh, video and streaming. And at the time, I had a six-month-old golden retriever puppy and a three-year or a three-week-old son uh, who is now three years old um, <laughs> and I called them my little monsters like many um, right. you know parents probably do and so named the the company after them I thought it fit for a tagline it, it wasn't until we'd already made a decision and had like logos made and all that kind of <laughs> stuff but my wife goes oh you should do you should do something like we're scary good I was like, where was that eight months ago? We're <laughs> um, oh, like little monsters, big audiences. But anyway, um, we're, we're little monster media co. Close enough. Um, so Matt, one of your specialities is clearly understanding what this YouTube beast wants from us. Have you seen kind of major changes in the algorithm and the way YouTube handles content? Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely. And well, yes and no. So basically the algorithm in my view was very very stable for um about a solid three and a half four years like once they made the switch to watch time there were a bunch of like little things that caused like big waves for certain areas of youtube but it kind of got to a very stable point and stayed very stable for you know two or three years and then starting in september late august september of 2018 things just started going crazy. And uh, things were a bit stable between, I want to say, October and November, about eight weeks. And then right around December 15th, everything went crazy again. Um, and then again on January 15th, uh, and then February 15th or 18th, um, somewhere in that range, 
basically every six to eight weeks we're seeing these massive changes in what is or what isn't being promoted and some of that is algorithmic and some of that is like structural and policy um and by structural i mean like making very specific decisions as to what will be put into suggested or browse which seems to be a layer overriding the algorithm um, in some capacity uh, or from a policy level where you know we'll have like um, you know some big news story will come out YouTube will add something to the policy layer everything goes crazy and then the pendulum kind of swings back after you know a couple of weeks once they start getting their feet underneath them again in right. response to whatever the issue is that week right like we had the um, outbreak i mean pedophiles basically um that caused a huge issue in the kids space and then we had uh most recently the um you know stephen crowder insane right wing uh personality and conspiracy theorist war um that's probably the most fresh so you know there's been a lot of pretty major hiccups um over the last you know i guess nine months now that have caused fairly radical swings um, but I think even more importantly, we saw the introduction of the DPP optimizer, uh, which is Google's attempt to create quote unquote diversity in the feed, which, um, we just put out a video on our YouTube channel, little monsters, YouTube channel, uh, reverse engineering YouTube algorithm part three, because it was a massive structural change to the algorithm. Um, we released reverse engineering YouTube algorithm part two, I want to say in 2017, 2018, um, which was a Google white paper that explained how they created the algorithm. Right. It basically said, you know, there's two big main filters, candidate generation and ranking. Well, the DPP optimizer is a third massive filter. And what the optimizer essentially does is if you have a feed, like in browse, for example, or the Facebook feed as an example, typically the way they sort the items in that feed is from like best to worst, right? If you say, okay, right. user A is likely going to be interested in these 100 videos, we've ranked them from one to 100. Well, for that user and for any user, the optimal like actual layout of that feed might not be to go from you know best to worst. It might be like, well, put the best one at spot seven, mm. put the worst one at spot 24, right? And that's mm. basically um, optimization by group as opposed to optimization by individual video. Um, it's really fascinating if you read the paper and or you can watch our video to I'll see. watch uh, the video, yes. <laughs> right? um, to see an overview of it, the, the way it's being implemented because YouTube has come out and said, oh, we want to provide more diverse you know, opinions, or we want to provide, you know, a wider set of topics. And it's really not that. Basically, it's we want to <laughs> hack your brain to make you stay <laughs> on the website longer. And what we found was by pulling more videos from your history and leaning a little bit heavier into um, uh, collaborative filtering, we found that we can make you stay on our website longer. It's basically like, hey, we made a better heroin. Right. right. Um, it, ha it has nothing to do with like, you know, exposing people to different opinions or, 
you know, um, you know, exposing more creators. It's, it's 100% solely based on the fact that we can get you to stay on our website longer if we pull more videos from your history. Well, and the longer you stay, the more ads they can serve, the better the business grows, uh, all, all of that good stuff. YouTube's still yep. a business. At the end of the day, their interest isn't to shove you off platform. Okay, so exactly. That, that makes sense. But now, does that mean that YouTube looks at individual videos compared to a channel as a whole? Oh, yeah. I don't think they look at channels as a whole at all, actually, um, other than to make recommendations to audiences based on which videos to serve them next, right? So right. in part two and part three, they go into a lot of depth of basically saying, like, to program our website, we program to the individual, right? So. Each individual has a distinct watch history, and we look at their watch history in order to make recommendations to them uh, for what they're going to want to watch in their next session. So, for example, if you're a big fan of um, Rosanna Pancino, who I'm sure we're all wishing a speedy recovery, I'm glad she's uh, you know on the mend. Um, let's say you're a huge fan of her, and you have all of her videos in your watch history. Um, at what YouTube will do is next time you come to the platform, they'll say, wow, this person always engages with uh, Rose videos. Every time we put one in front of them, she has just released a new video. So let's put this video in front mm -hmm. of that person, um, assuming that that video has done well with other viewers um, on the platform that also have similar watch histories or similar demographic information, right? So right. if you upload a video to your channel, <clears throat> And, um, you know, your audience doesn't choose to click on it, or if they do, they don't stay on it for very long and you don't get good average reduration. YouTube will say, well, this video isn't very good when we serve it to people that are really engaged with this channel. Let's not serve it to any more people like that. Let's use mm -hmm. that uh, space for something else, uh, whether it's another video from your channel or a video from someone else's channel. Got it. And what about kind of your next video? So in other words, you, you served a video, it did really well. Is the likelihood of your next video kind of being looked at more favorably? Or is it each video on its own merit, good or bad? Um, it's each video on its own merit, good or bad. Um, with the exception of like, let's say you have a video or let's say you upload videos and pretty much on average, you get a thousand views in that first week on that video. If you have a video that comes out and does 2,000 views in that first week. Well, now you have double the number of people with one of your videos in their recent watch history um, that is a strong signal to YouTube that your next video should be served to a wider set of people right. because that previous video is in more people's watch history. So that next video might have uh, a better chance of doing well because there are more people with one of your videos in their recent watch history but they, they look at them from what I can tell and from what I've seen, and I believe from what Todd has said, if you watch Creator Insiders, Todd is um, mm -hmm. one of the main people on search and discovery at YouTube, that they pretty much look at each video individually. And so, yes, your videos are going to impact each other, like it's a symbiotic relationship, right? right. Where if you have a video that's doing really well consistently and that's bringing more viewers to your channel, it doesn't matter if that video was posted a week ago or you know, 10 weeks ago or five years ago, right? Those people that are watching that video within those last seven days, you know, one month, two months 
all have one of your videos in their recent watch history, even if that video is from long ago. And so your yes. new videos are going to be put in front of those people, which is kind of the one of the, one of the main reasons why if someone shifts their content type and does it mm -hmm. too abruptly, that they can really struggle to grow that new content type because people aren't there for that new content yes. type. They're there for that old content type, and that leads to, you know, eventual uh, death spirals on YouTube. Often, <laughs> could we be forcing relationships on YouTube between our videos? Is there a way, or does YouTube even look at this? When obviously we put end card, um, end screens, we put in cards, we put in links in the description, put in a comment with with links to our other videos. Does YouTube kind of take all of that into account as well when it's starting to suggest videos? Yeah, they, they absolutely do. Um, I would say that that should not relieve the content creator or the channel manager of the onus of creating those connections. Um, but essentially what you're describing is collaborative filtering or one of kind of the things that goes into collaborative filtering, right? So we look at collaborative filtering in a few ways. One of the ways you already kind of mentioned where if you upload a new video and your viewers really love it and click on it a lot, they will serve it to more and more people that have one of your videos in their watch history, but maybe aren't as active on the platform or it's a little bit older. Um, and then they'll serve it to people beyond that that just have expressed interest in the topic or have similar watch histories, blah, blah, blah. So that's one mm -hmm. aspect of it. The other aspect of it is if a whole bunch of viewers watch video A and then they go on to watch video B, well, people who have watched video A but have not watched video B are more likely to be recommended video B because so many people mm -hmm. who watched video A went on to watch video B, right? And that's in right. suggested or even in browse and that sort of thing. So if you can create those kind of viewership paths within your content by end screens, playlists, call to action, links in descriptions, pinned comment, links on your channel, et cetera, et cetera, then you are more likely to have YouTube promote more of your own content against your own content, but also put your content in front of uh, similar viewers throughout the platform. Yep. That, to me, this makes complete sense. It's people, shoppers that have bought A would also like to buy B. It's the same kind of Amazonish um, mentality, but on videos where they like yep. this content, they're more likely to like that content. Let me help them along with that. Now, you, you've mentioned a lot about views, but you didn't mention subscribers. Are we making too much of a thing about subscribers because subscribers have changed over the time? Is it all about the views or is subscribers kind of still a thing? Um, I'm not sure, um, but I don't think it matters. Okay. So generally speaking, like, I don't know if you watched my response video to uh, Derek from Veritasium's video. My video went viral. Here's why. So it was a long video. It was a half hour long, my video. His video was like a half hour too. Um, but essentially in part of that, I go into this question, right? And essentially back when uh, Google first released uh, the one channel, right? Um, huh. It was wrapped up with Google Plus and it was a whole initiative that fell flat on its face and was absolutely awful. They actually had uh, literature on their website that said, your channel is a special snowflake. And they weren't saying it ironically, right? Like, I was like, how tone deaf are the idiots? Anyway, um, because every channel looked exactly the same. It was so terrible. They still do. It's awful. Anyway, I mean, 
look, I love YouTube. YouTube has allowed me to be unbelievably successful and start my own business. And I will, you know, jump to their defense when, whenever I can. But sometimes we got to call them out because mm. sometimes they just make terrible decisions. <laughs> it's not always their fault. Um, but anyways, we digress. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have to, you know, add the footnotes now of like, look, I'm not anti YouTube. I love yeah, YouTube. Right. Anyway. <laughs> so during that time period, what they did was anyone who created an account was basically auto subscribed to dozens and dozens of channels across many different verticals that had nothing to do with any interest they'd ever expressed. And so you had these channels that went from like, you know, a million subscribers, a million five to several million subscribers. And most of their subscribers had never seen a single video from them ever before, had no idea who they were, didn't click on their stuff. Right. And a lot of them were like, I can't get any viewership because you're putting my videos in front of people that have no interest in them because you, yeah, you auto subscribe them. And so YouTube was like, Oh, well, let's just make subscriptions unimportant. So it was like, wait, what? <laughs> They're like, yeah, we That's... screwed this thing up. And so we'll just keep screwing it up. Um, oh, undo, undo, undo. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately they can't. And so yeah, they were like, okay, now we're going to have people subscribe. And then they're also going to ring a bell. And then they're going to have options for that bell. And then even if they select some option, we still might not send stuff to them. Like, it's just, it's so mind-bogglingly dumb that it's like, why are we even thinking about it? Um, because also the data indicates that, right? Like I've worked with channels across the board, big, small channels, everything in between, right? And almost none of them get more than, you know, a handful of percentage points of their viewership from notifications, right? I can tell you on the Little Monster channel, like we're brand new. So all of our subscribers are pretty fresh and pretty active, right? Um, For us, I think it's like 3%. It's from notifications, which is, I think, like the highest I've ever seen it. Um, yeah, it awesome. is our, over the last 28 days, it's our seventh biggest traffic source. It's responsible for 3.7% of our views. Um, and that's like 300 total views, right? And we've released five videos. So it's just like, okay, you know, I can't focus on notifications. I don't really have any right. control over that. Like telling people to ring the bell is way less valuable than telling them to go on and watch more videos. So I ignore that. And then if you look at subscriber views versus non-subscriber views, um, you know, that can vary wildly, right? I've seen channels doing hundreds of millions of monthly views that have like 3% from their subscribers and some that have 20% from their subscribers. Mm. But if you look at the traffic sources on that, it's all browse and suggested, right? Um, So like, whether someone subscribed to your channel or not is such a low impact signal from what I've seen in terms of what gets suggested to them that really exerting any sort of effort there is not nearly as good as exerting effort towards understanding your, your audience and your viewership, what they're interested in and thinking about your programming towards that general audience because YouTube cares far, far, far more about how someone has interacted with your content the last time it was put in front of them or the last several times it was put in front of mm. them, then they care at all about whether or not someone subscribed. Okay, so it's, it's, at the end of the day, we're once again circling all the way around back to the viewer. It's all about them, their experience, and what they would want to most probably see next and then engage with it. Oh, cool. so, speaking, of, speaking of engagement, does I mean, do you find in your experience that things like 
give the video a thumbs up and leave a comment. Does that also add to good signals as well as the watch time and when somebody rewinds your video and watches it again? Um, they all, they're all taken into account, right? And YouTube even said recently, or um, a source close to YouTube as cited in the Bloomberg article said that they were looking at total time spent on site, including time commenting. And it was like, yeah, no shit. They've been doing that for like five years. It's called watch time, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, yes. So like, yeah, it's great, right? The more engaged your audience is, mm -hmm. the better, right? If someone's just passively viewing and it's it's kind of like they can watch or they could pass on it, well, you're kind of in a bad situation, right? You want people right. hyper-engaged if you can. And, and some of the ways to do that is to get them to like the video and to mm -hmm. comment on it. Now, one thing they did say, um, I forget when exactly, um, but uh, it's, it's on the the website, I think, in the um, what is it, the Creator Academy or something about mm -hmm. like we're taking things like what people like and what they dislike into account. And it's like, well, are they saying like and dislike from the engagement or like and dislike right. based on the implicit signals that they're sending? Because if you look at reverse engineering part three, I'm not sure if I cited it in the video, but in the actual paper, they say that. Um, explicit signals are actually not very good um, from viewers with the exception of surveys, but like they're not surveying you after every single video you watch. <laughs> yes. Right. Like they're surveying you on like a session basis to say like, how was your last session? Mm. Right. Like, are you satisfied with your time on YouTube? Because YouTube doesn't care about the individual uh, video. They don't care right. about the individual creator. They care about the individual viewer. And they want to know if the viewer's experience was good, yep. right? And like, you can't be confident in the accuracy of their answer. And so they look for the signals right. that you don't consciously think you're sending by, you know, clicking on that one more video or, you know, mm -hmm. clicking on that one thumbnail with the scantily clad girl, right? And when you see that it's just some dude playing a video game, you're like, oh, I'm out of here, yeah, right? Really, it's a yeah. guilty you know, pleasure thing that you're not going to admit to, but YouTube sees those signals, right? They know exactly what you're doing. Um, and so they make those suggestions based, I think, far more on the implicit feedback than on the explicit of like, dislike, comments, survey kind of thing. Okay. Um, but the, the one thing I haven't said yet, which is by far the most important thing is click-through rate, okay. right? Let's so, unpack that. <laughs> so click-through rate, right? It's just the number of impressions divided by the number of people that clicked on it is king by far 100% um, will be king until YouTube fundamentally changes the way they promote videos to people. And by fundamentally, I mean, right now, the way they promote videos to people essentially is by showing them a thumbnail and title. Now, with the mobile feed going to like a preview and now basically just playing videos in that mobile feed, if you sit on it long enough, that's mm -hmm. gonna change things up a little bit, but right now it's click-through rate basically. And so, we, when we think about click-through rate at Little Monster, what we think about is um, click-through rate actually starts on the whiteboard. And your programming choice has such a huge impact on your click-through rate, right? So your programming choice is um, when Mr. Beast says, okay, we're going to make a video. What are we going to do, right? They don't go away and give $1,000. They give away $100,000. And that might seem like a small programming choice, but it's a huge, huge deal, right? Like, Talking right. about millions of more people that are excited to see a hundred thousand dollar giveaway than a thousand dollar giveaway. Absolutely. Right? What you choose to make a video about 
in large part is going to determine your title and thumbnail, right? And so like you talk to a lot of YouTubers and a lot of YouTubers go, oh yeah, I think what's gonna make a great title and thumbnail and then I make a video about that, right? That would deliver on the value proposition of the programming choice as reflected in my title and thumbnail so that people stay and watch it. Um, because click-through rate doesn't really mean all that much if people click a, uh, click away from your video and you don't yes. get the average view duration, mm -hmm. right? So again, there's another one of these like symbiotic relationships where it's like you can't just focus on one thing, right? You got to be an amazing programmer, right? Making a great video and choosing to make a great video. You got to be great at production so that your content is high quality, and, uh, yeah. ad friendly, and all these other things. Right. And then you also have to be an amazing marketer um, in that title and thumbnail. Right. You know, at the end of the day, it's it's the people that really understand not to go ready, fire, aim, contact out your camera, shoot for nine hours and go, oh, I wonder what I'm going to do with this footage. Mm -hmm. If you're very deliberate and very purposeful, you'll win so much more, especially when you're using the various tools, when you're using YouTube's own autocomplete. And you're going to get all those hints of stuff that people actually care about, make your content around that, that is immediately a leg up to the previous scenario where you ready fire aim. Yep. Um, I would caution on the autocomplete. I think autocomplete is a great starting point, but you want to run all of those autocompletes through Google Trends, make sure you're yeah. uh, shifted to YouTube search, just to confirm, because some of those autocompletes can mean things that um, you don't understand what they mean, but they can also be from a long time ago. Right. Oh, relevancy for today is critical. The typical example to, to prove it is when you go and if you do a search for, I don't know, Mother's Day now, that's come and gone. The interest of this is flat. But if you just did an interest for a search for Mother's Day, you're going to be seeing a million videos. It's so mm -hmm. the two are very, very different. It's all about relevancy and time as opposed to, oh, it's got 6 million views. It must be a good video. I'll make one just like it. <laughs> well, mm -hmm. the, the iPhone 4 when it came out and the Galaxy Note 1 when it came out, I'm sure it had millions of views, but how relevant is it today? Mm -hmm. Matt, do you think we should be focusing on writing titles and descriptions for humans or should we be doing writing titles and description more keyword stuffing for machines? Oh, I mean, obviously you want to do it for humans, right? Like when we think about optimization, what we think about a little monster is essentially what is more likely to get a viewer to click on this rather than what is going to make a machine understand this because click-through rate is so much more important than anything else. Like YouTube will figure out what your video is about, right? They'll do that by listening to and watching now your video, right? Hmm. I don't know if you've had a chance to play around with um, uh, the cloud vision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but um, you, po you pop a video in that and you're like, holy crap, they just watched my video, right? Yes. They're not great at it, but they're pretty damn good at it. Right? And they're getting better. Um, and they're just gonna get better and better and better. Um, and they'll be far better than humans eventually because like humans, we get tunnel vision, right? Like yes. we don't um, you know, pay attention to stuff going on on the edge of the frame if the central focus is the middle of the frame, but mm -hmm. a computer can see it all. Um, and then they look at things like comments, right? And how does your metadata match up to what they're seeing, right? And um, is that accurate? And have you been historically accurate? But all of that is basically like, they look at 
um, comments, uh, which there's actually another white paper um, that we're going to do another report on. We're going to do six different white papers, actually, that have all been released by Google for reverse engineering part four sometime after VidCon. So that's a little bit of news. Okay. But one of the things they said was that in determining the language of a video, it's actually far more accurate to look at the language used in the comments than it is to rely on what the creator put in as their language, especially what? for older videos. Wow. Okay, hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The obvious question is, what happens if you're new and you've got no comments? Well, one, it's very important that you actually put the language of your video into the video metadata, um, in part because for eight or nine years, that wasn't even an option. And so there's eight or nine years of videos that mm -hmm. I just have no language set to them other than what YouTube has gone through and determined if it's made it to that video yet. That's um, relatively new. And part, a big part of how they make recommendations, and I'm giving you a, a sneak peek at um, part four here quite a bit, Ooh. is on contextualization. So contextualization has everything to do with um, where is the viewer watching? What device are they watching it on? Uh, are they watching it on Wi-Fi or are they watching it on their cell phone uh, or um, via a, a, a telephone, like whatever yeah. that is? The, the age uh, of the viewer, the race, you know, other demographic information, and they're adding these contextualization layers at multiple points in the recommendation engine. Um, and so what that's doing is, as it pertains to kind of the previous comment about language, is if the person generally watches content in the English language, they're going to be, you know, a thousand times more likely to just serve them content in the English language, right? If someone always watches with closed captions mm -hmm. on, they are a thousand times more likely only to serve them content with closed captions, right? Like, yep. that's the level of granularity they're getting to, um, which is just, it's mind-boggling. Mind-boggling, absolutely. Yeah, complex. Like, it's, it's just absolutely ridiculous at this point, but Essentially, um, if you have to actually answer your question, if you have no comments, and it's, it's even more important that you're uploading the transcript, but if you have no comments, you don't have much of an audience, right? Um, yes. Most likely. And so I would be far less concerned about YouTube understanding what your video is about and far more concerned with how do I get in front of people that I think will like this, right? Um, an old colleague of mine at my previous job had a saying, uh, if your mom and dad uh, or your friends and family don't want to watch your content, it's probably the content, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> like when people True. say, oh, why aren't I getting any views, right? And so it's like, that's where you start. Like when I started a little monster channel, right? Like I had a small following on LinkedIn, right? Like 5,000 followers on LinkedIn is like 5,000 followers on Twitter, right? It's, mm. it's nothing, right? But that, I started posting our YouTube videos and would post like... Um, you know, teasers for the YouTube video to my LinkedIn audience and got a little bit of traction of those people coming over to YouTube and watching and watching with their YouTube accounts. And so uh, from there, YouTube would serve it to more and more people. And then with, you know, a few of the connections I'd made on um, YouTube over the years, other creators on the platform, like, you know, they would like the videos or comment on the videos and that would get a few more people watching and a few more people watching, and a few more people watching. And that began snowball where, you know, we started this channel in, you know, January of this year. Um, and, you know, we haven't been great about it. Um, you know, trying to run an agency and a YouTube channel at the same time is um, not easy. 
you know, we got a couple thousand subs now, you know, we put up a video, it's, you know, going to get a thousand views or so in the first week. Uh, that's not bad for a channel that was started in, in January for a company that basically had no audience, right? Like you mentioned mm -hmm. early on, these big names that we consult for and we're extremely well known in the industry, which is great. Um, but we're not very well known in the creator community and in the broader YouTube fan community at all. Right now we've given presentations, um, on creator tracks at VidCon and that kind of thing. But, you know, we haven't been on a platform for years like Tim or, um, Roberto or Daryl. And so like, just no one knows who we are there and we just don't have any reach there. Um, right. so that's part of why we're doing this. Cause we would put all this like love and work into these massive papers and we'd put them out on tube filter and you know it, it tens of thousands a couple hundred thousand reads but i have no idea if that's industry or creators or right. who's that helping right and so it was like well if we're youtube people should probably have a youtube channel right and to be perfectly honest to be perfectly honest with you like part of the reason why we just never started a youtube channel for the first two years is just me being self-conscious about being on camera Right. Like, um, and so finally Hi. I was like, get over it. Just put yourself on goddamn camera. No one cares. You, you mean so. you, you're human like, like the other creators? No. I'm still in denial about that, yeah. but yes. <laughs> so, the philosophy of doubling down on content that works, that still holds water. So people are here for a certain type of content and you give them more of that content and they're likely to watch it. Give them more of that content. They're likely to watch it rinse and repeat that still holds true is that correct oh 100 i think it's more important yeah. than ever um you absolutely 100 have to be focused on a niche if your goal is to grow right yes, if, yes. You, you know if you just want to make videos that are fun that you feel like doing great fine absolutely. um you know but if your goal is to grow on youtube then yeah you have to find what that through line is and then you can kind of make whatever you want. Um, so a lot of YouTube channels um, are the through line is the personality, right? Now, sometimes right. it's a mutual interest in video games. Sometimes it's a mutual interest in, you know, woodworking or skateboarding, whatever it is, right? That like, that's the fans are there because they like your personality and you have that shared common interest. But if you look at, a lot of creators oftentimes it's just that they want to hang out with that creator. Right? Um, right. And so those creators can be free to do, you know, kind of any format they want. But uh, if we take Epic mealtime as an example, like any video Epic mealtime put up that was not an Epic mealtime format just wouldn't do as well. But yes. Right. Um, people were there. Yeah. They liked the personality, but they wanted that format. Right. They wanted to see them cook that crazy thing. Right. They right. wanted that show. Um, so if you if your audience has really evolved around one particular format, you have to be careful about going too far away from that format um, from a viewership perspective. Yep. No, I mean, like five minutes crafts does five minute crafts. If they did yep. something weird, you'll maybe give them one or two opportunities, but most likely they don't come back to their call, you're going to move on that oh, you're yeah. there for a certain type of content they have to deliver. Do you see a difference between how to channels and entertainment channels? Yeah. Great question. Um, so we, we refer to them as utility channels, right? Um, so you have your entertainment channels where people are there to kind of be entertained, right? And mm -hmm. that can take on, you know, 
millions of different forms. A utility channel is a channel that people come to for information and then leave. Now, yes. the then leave part is not the desired intent of a <laughs> utility channel. It's just what happens. And the reason why is that utility is an exchange, right? I'm exchanging mm -hmm. my time in watching this video and potentially a tiny you know, fraction of a penny or whatever it is, mm -hmm. right? In exchange for the information you are giving me, right? And so what ends up happening is there's no reason for someone to watch your next video often, right? Exactly. Because they've gotten that piece of information. Now, things that you can do to mitigate that is make your utility channel an entertainment channel, right? And there's kind of two main ways to do that, or three really. So first is the MKBHD way, right? Mm -hmm. where you make your videos so incredibly like stylish that they become works of art so that mm -hmm. I don't care if he's talking about an iPhone or a TV or, you know, home lighting, I'm right. going to watch it because they're beautiful. Right. Yes. The mm -hmm. next way is from a personality perspective. Right. And this is more of a, um, you know, household hacker approach. Right? I think it's household okay. hacker. Um, right, where people just love his personality, that they yes. don't care that he's sitting in a gray room, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, um, they're just like, yeah, this dude's awesome. I'm going to watch anything he puts up, right? Mm -hmm. And then the third way is to have a format that is so interesting that people don't care what product you're talking about. They're watching for the format or a combination of all three of those, right? But if you're just topic, right, you're like, oh, I just got to get this iPhone the moment it comes right. out because it matters if I put my video up before someone else. Well, you're never going to win that race, right? And you're always going to be chasing right. YouTube search, right? You're never mm -hmm. really going to grow. Most of your videos are going to get, like if you have 100,000 subs, most of your videos are going to get a couple thousand views if you're lucky, right? And you're just going to be hoping that you get that one video that breaks or that you're just big enough to get, you know, a brand deal here or there or whatever it is right. if you don't have one of those other things that's driving everything. So um, generally speaking, we very, very much discourage a utility or entertainment or, or a utility channel that's not pursuing being an entertainment channel. Okay, so a lot of us just had a mini heart attack as we listened <laughs> to this. Um, how do we convert them to become more entertainment? Okay, fair, fair, fair enough. Well, uh, well, to give myself a plug, I wrote an entire guide as to how to do that. Funny you should mention that because this is the exact time of the show where I normally say to you, so Matt, what have you got going on? What should we, where should we find you? <laughs> well, you can certainly check out our YouTube channel. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, but you might not want to uh, unless you're liberal because it is about 70% rage tweeting at Donald Trump and about 30% YouTube. Um, but I, don't maybe that's as high as, I don't even think it's as high as 30%. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Um, you can also check out all our work on TubeFilter, uh, all of our writings. And what I was going to mention about like utility channels, the resource for them is the taxonomy of YouTube videos. It's a free paper, put it on TubeFilter, or you can watch our series on it on our YouTube channel. But if you read that, that's basically a guide to developing fresh and unique content on YouTube by understanding what's popular on YouTube now and breaking it down into easily usable items. Um, and then the big news is cracking YouTube 2020 that is going to be looking at 200,000 YouTube videos, 20,000 YouTube channels, and seeing what we can draw from all of those channels of data. Um, so very excited about that. One thing I can spoil is that cracking YouTube in 2017 
what we saw was that videos that were between seven and 16 minutes, videos that got six to eight minutes of average view duration, had much greater performance than videos that were shorter or longer. Now, in cracking YouTube 2020, which is the paper that's coming out, we've done a fair amount of the research so far. Now, we've got a long ways to go, but what we're seeing, one, is that there's less dependency on generating high average view durations on average, but there's something that's very interesting that happens where we're seeing you know, videos that are you know, a couple minutes in length, they tend to perform not quite as well as uh, other videos, but there's you know, uh, at around four minutes, we're starting to see pretty decent first day viewership, at least on par with five and six minutes. And that starts to go down a little bit at seven, eight, nine minutes. But a really interesting thing happens when a video goes from nine minutes and 59 seconds to 10 minutes, which is that viewership jumps by somewhere between 20 and 40% on average. What? Right? Yep. I, I was very, very skeptical when I saw the data. I went through, quadruple checked my work, but I went and I looked at 2017 and the same exact thing happened in 2017. There's a jump. And I thought it was just an issue with the data when right. I presented it. And I didn't even bring it up because I was like, eh, this has got to be something funky here. Um, <laughs> you know, I never had a chance to go and circle back. But when I saw the same phenomenon happen in 2020, I said, okay, what the fuck is going on? And I went and I looked at it. And so this, it's at the very least true for first day viewership, right? Now, this could be something algorithmic, right? And something with that kind of jump feels algorithmic to me, but it could... <laughs> hear me out. It could also just be viewership, like just viewers, right? Where a nine minute and like 57 second video just feels long, long, right? You're like, Oh God, nine minutes, 57 seconds. Oh, God. But a 10 minute and two second video, that doesn't seem so long. Right. And I'm wondering if it's like, wow. if you want to watch a short video, nine minutes is long, but if you want to watch a long video, 10 minutes is short. short. Right. So like, I don't know. I, we have a lot more data research to do, but that was the nugget I was talking about earlier, where it's Ooh. like, okay, this is not a coincidence anymore. This is a pattern, and we need to look more further into this. So we're going to go into that. We're going to go into a ton of depth on frequency of post, a lot on average view duration. We've got a lot of data around both suggested and browse. So I'm super excited to share this report. Um, you know, we're going to present it at VidCon. We'll probably do a tube filter write up on it. There will definitely be at least half a dozen videos on it on our YouTube channel. So. Um, just a ton of data and information coming out around cracking YouTube 2020. Oh my, that is a big one to look out for. And that's literally <laughs> around the corner. So um, yeah. I'm not sure what you're doing speaking to me. You should be data analyzing. <laughs> I mean, love these rabbit holes that we can kind of unpack these even, even more. So thank you one more time for really, um, that was very insightful. And we definitely have to look up TubeFilter, look up at all those resources just so we can get ourselves back on track. So Matt, thank you one more time. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, man. I appreciate it. And for the rest of you guys still hanging out here, um, I know that you're blown away, but if you're still hanging around here, make sure you hit that subscribe button on your podcast app, leave us a review so we know how we're doing, and we'll catch you guys on the next episode of Chief Talk. Cheers for now. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tube Talk, brought to you by vidIQ. Head over to vidIQ.com slash Tube Talk for today's show notes and previous episodes. Enjoy the rest of your video making day.